0: If you have a copy of God's word, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the inside cover of the bulletin has a copy of the passage. You can also use one of the pew Bibles, the black books, pardon me, in the uh, chair rack in front of you. Red ones are hymnals, black ones are pew Bibles. Give you just a second to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's page 976 if you're using the Pew Bible. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, ...to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's give thanks. Let's ask his blessing upon his word now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Help us to see your goodness to undeserving folks like us who were once dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to even call out to you. Father, thank you for all you have done for us. Be with us now. Help us to see our sin. Help us to see our Savior. We ask it all in Jesus' great name. Amen. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Those words can be true for you today as well, regardless of your background. I think that's what Paul's trying to tell us from Ephesians 2. It's similar to what Jesus was saying in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, the the two sons, as well as the two stories before it, which are about lost coins, lost sheep. Do you remember how those stories end? Do you remember what Jesus says to the grumbling, full of themselves Pharisees? the self-righteous scribes who were mad at Jesus that he spent so much time receiving sinners. He says, Luke 15, verse 7, just so I tell you, Jesus says, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. To be clear, we all need to repent. Jesus knows that. But he's saying that there's no joy When someone thinks that I'm already righteous, I don't need to repent. On the contrary, if you hate your sin, you see your sin, you hate your sin, you want to flee from your sin and run to Christ, then oh, there is joy. When someone passes from death to life, there's joy. When someone who once was lost now is found, there is joy. When a wretch like me gets saved, there's joy. Whether it's a wretched slave trader like John Newton or a self-righteous scribe who on the front side of God's grace knows that everyone else is doing something wrong but can't seem to see their own pride, their own supposedly respectable sins. You see, this passage is good news for both types as well as anyone in between because it says, by God's wisdom, our background is the same. And by God's grace, our future, our privileges can also be the same. We'll see that in a moment. We'll get the Ephesians 2 from the fire hose view here. But first, let's take a a wider view. My goal, I've said it a few times, is to get to Ephesians 4 and then slow down, preach about 6 to 10 sermons. We'll figure that out soon enough. But first, I didn't want to skip the glory of Ephesians 1 through 3. That's worth seeing, even if we're going quickly. So we're spending one sermon each on Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. See, Ephesians is all about the church glorious, and Ephesians 4 is all about walking worthy of our glorious calling. But to get there, we have to understand what we see here, the foundation of our glorious calling. We have to remember where we came from, our background. So this morning, we will see our grave condition, our glorious change, you might also call it our grace condition, and then thirdly, we'll see our great privilege, our great privilege, but let's go back to the first point, our grave condition without Christ, our grave condition without Christ. You see it in the first three verses as well as a few others. Today's outline was inspired by Matthew Henry. He's got a fabulous one-volume commentary on the entire Bible. I'd recommend it to you, but... Henry says this passage begins with our grave condition. He says miserable condition, but the same idea. It's it's grave. It's serious. It's grave, somewhat literally, right? Because verse 1 says, And you were dead in trespasses, in sins. The sentence doesn't end there, but we'll stop for a second because we need to unpack this. God, God is saying to us through his messenger Paul, he's saying that we were dead. That might be a metaphor, but still a pretty serious metaphor, right? If you hear a football coach or someone else say, our team was dead out there today, he's not paying them a compliment, right? This is serious. He says, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses, helpful word. We, we know what that is, right? It's going where you're not supposed to go. Whether that's into a bank vault, whether that's into an employees-only area, past the police, you know, yellow tape at a uh, somewhere like that. Somewhere you're not supposed to go. Paul is saying, we all have gone places, we have done things that we're not supposed to do. We we have become like spiritual zombies. We're the walking dead. Our trespasses have killed us spiritually also says we were dead because we were, we, we are, in some cases still, we are sinners. Without Christ, we're still dead in our sins. Again, what is sin? We talked about it two weeks ago. I used the shorter catechism definition so that we're all on the same page. Sin is any want of, lack of, conformity unto, or transgression. You might say trespass of the law of God. What's going on there? We have a divine lawgiver, creator, and we all, like Adam, have not kept his standard. We have trespassed into areas where God has said, keep out, that is dangerous, don't go there. So as a result, we, we were dead, walking in sin, following the ways of the world, because you know, none of us are really as nonconformist as we think we are. Sure, we don't conform to God's law, but we almost always find someone else to conform to. But why is that? Well, it's because, what does it say here? The prince of the power of the air, he is at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 2. Satan still tempts us. Oh, he knows he's fighting a losing battle, but you see he's similar to what Alfred says about the Joker in the movie The Dark Knight. Some men just want to watch the world burn. He wants to create chaos wherever he can, even if he's fighting a losing battle. If he can convince us to do what feels good, no matter the consequences, then he's won at least that round. But think about this phrase, sons of disobedience. If Adam and Eve's sons and daughters, which all of us are, if we had never found God's grace, isn't this what we would look like? Notice how verse three describes the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, like the rest of mankind. By God's wisdom, our background is all the same. We were all just like the rest of mankind, dead in sin, walking according to the ways of the world, following the crowd, doing what our passions, our bodies said to do, walking according to our nature begging practically for a holy God to respond in wrath because God in his holiness cannot dwell with sin. Without God's grace, wasn't this our background? Are we any better than anyone else? I apologize to the Ohio State Buckeye fans amongst us, but Jim Harbaugh reminded sports fans a few years ago, some people are born on third base. And they act like they've hit a triple. I think even if you're not a baseball fan, you get that one. But what is Paul saying about us here? Does he say we're all born on third base? No, sir. He says we're born dead in sin. We're not even born on first base. It's as if we're up to bat, two strikes against us, maybe three. Nolan Ryan is pitching and we have a plastic wiffle ball bat. In other words, in the midst of that bizarre baseball analogy, what am I saying? We have no hope. No chance. Not on our own. We're not just dead. What does verse 11 say? We are also separated, alienated, on the outside looking in. We don't have a ticket to the dance. We don't have an invite to the party. We are strangers. The NIV says we were without hope and without God. That's where we were. And for some of us, that's still where you are. Without hope without God, without Christ. Oh, you know his name. You know that he's the answer to some of the questions in Sunday school, but you don't know him. You don't know his power. You don't know his peace. You don't know the change that he can bring by his grace. Even if you do know all that, keep in mind, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you don't need to forget it and you don't need to forget your background, where you came from, the grave condition that you were born into because if you forget it, forget what God has done, well you might become like that man on third base, the one who thinks he's hit the triple. He's really proud of himself when the truth is that God is the one who dragged you around the bases. He's the one who did the work. Without Christ we all had, some of us still have a grave condition. It's serious. It's grave. You were dead in your sins. But we also see, secondly, this morning, we see our glorious change in Christ. Our glorious change in Christ, starting in verse 4. Point number one was our grave condition without Christ. We're dead in sins and transgressions. Then this one is our grace condition with Christ. In Christ, we are changed. How does does He change us? How does grace change us? Well, look for yourselves. Look at verses 1 through 4. Notice where the glorious change happens. Let's just read verses 1 through 4 again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Yes, I emphasize the but God, didn't I? But I think you'd have spotted it on your own. But God, he doesn't kill the spiritual zombies like us, does he? No, who were once dead in their sins. No, he does something far better, doesn't he? Verse 5 goes on to say, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. This God who is rich in mercy, who loves us with a great love. The the love that Sally Lloyd-Jones would call a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That God, that love is what sought us, is what bought us with his redeeming love. He made us alive when we were dead. Isn't that just kind of his M.O.? Isn't that the way he works Jesus made Lazarus alive when he was dead. God made Jesus alive when he was dead. So why can't he do it for you and me? If you have hoped in Christ, what did we learn a couple of weeks ago? We learned from Ephesians 1 that you are saints. We are saints, holy in Christ. And we are also this week, we see alive in Christ. This is the glorious change that we're talking about, that God has worked in us. It is all by grace, verse 5 says, And once he made us alive, he didn't stop there. Verse six says, he raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. You might be saying, well, what's going on here? Where where am I again? Based on that verse, am am I in heaven now or am I here on earth? Is this all a mirage, a dream, an illusion? You're here on earth. This is not a test. But if you are in Christ... Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3 says, you've already entered into the age to come. Your citizenship is now in heaven and no one can take it from you. It's that glorious inheritance that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 1, the immeasurable riches of his grace that are mentioned in Ephesians 2:7. This glorious change, it has benefits now, yes. But it also gives us hope beyond the here and now. It gives us an inheritance. But you know, Paul, is, Paul isn't done talking about that change. Not, not, not yet. No, he's not. And it's because of that whole born on third base thing again. You see, we have to understand why this change has taken place. We can't skip over that quickly. We have to realize that, yes, we are called to put our faith in Christ. Called to believe in him, trust in him, rest in him. But we could never do that. We can't skip over this. We could never do that without God's renewing, reviving grace in our lives. And if we forget that, if we minimize that in any way, what's the consequence? Uh, We begin to think that, well, why am I a Christian? I mean, I, I guess I must be a little bit better than that guy, a little bit smarter than... Those guys, maybe I'm wiser. Maybe I'm just more duty-driven. Maybe I'm more moral. Maybe I'm more something. You see how that happens? If you minimize the way God brings the dead to life and the way he did that for all of us. Paul already said in verse 5, it's by grace you've been saved, but in case you missed it, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Another day, another year, we might do a half dozen sermons on those two verses alone, but for right now, we're, we're gonna keep on trucking here. It says, by grace, through faith. Think about that. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor, as many have said. It is nothing that you or I deserved. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is that there is something that happens. We'll say more on that in a second. But faith is, it's not, a, it's not a work that we do. It's not, I made myself believe. I gritted my teeth and I did it. And so God rewarded me. No, faith is the, the channel, the instrument through which God's grace flows. John Calvin put it this way. Faith then brings a man empty to God. That he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. We hold out an empty hand. That's all we do. By our trusting, our resting in the promises of God, we receive his grace. Yes, something does happen. We do have to put our faith in Christ, but we are much more passive in that process than we like to admit. The grammarians like me, you probably noticed the verb in verse 8. It's passive. By grace... You saved yourself. That's not what it says, right? By grace, you have been saved. It's often called a divine passive. In other words, we are the beneficiary. We get the benefit, but God did the work. Verse 8, the end of it says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And then again, verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Not by you, not by works, at least not your works. It's God's work. Why? So that no one can boast. So that no one can say, look how good I am. I figured it out. I was smarter. I was better. I was more humble. Look at me. I just destroyed my humility with that statement. But you get the idea. You can't do that. You have to realize it's by God's grace. And yet at the same time, even though it's not a result of how good you are, there is something different about you as a result of this glorious change that God works because what does verse 10 say we can't divorce this from the verses that come before it for that word for means this is intimately connected to what just happened what was just said verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them Verses 8 and 9 have a way of sort of beating your ego into submission, right? And just as he does that, verse 10 comes and it gives you new purpose, new motivation. You are God's workmanship. It's reminding us, on the one hand, that God, not you, works salvation in you. Sure, that's correct. But it's also reminding us that God made us for a purpose. God's workmanship, that's what we are. We're created, we're recreated. In Christ Jesus, for good works. He's worked to change in us, not to make us lazy and complacent, but to make us holy. We are passive in salvation, largely. That should humble us. We aren't supposed to be passive after salvation, are we? No, salvation, it makes us new men and women in Christ. It remakes us. It undoes some of the disastrous effects on this side of heaven. That happened in Genesis 3. I didn't get a chance to use this quote when we went through Genesis, but my friend Miles likes to say, don't tell me the world is going to hell in a handbasket because the world already went to hell in a handbasket. It's called Genesis 3. And so in the meantime since then, what is God doing? God is remaking his kingdom one person at a time, one gospel witness at a time. He's working a glorious change in us. Now, for some, we can say, praise the Lord. That change has already begun. For some, it may be starting even right now. That change may be happening right now. Today may be the day of salvation for you. Today may be the favorable time. If it is, don't wait. Don't harden your heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. But this passage is hitting some of you a little differently. You're saying, Matt, this is great. This is, this is wonderful. Sure, I, I get it. But Matt, I don't, I don't think you understand as good as all this is, it's not fast enough. You see, if I have to wait for God to save one individual at a time, well, our, our world is a wreck. Our world might continue to descend into chaos. Now, don't you watch the news every day? I'm not Pollyanna. I, I know what's going on in our world. I'm not always happy about it. And underneath that frustration, aren't we basically saying, if we rely on the gospel, that may be too slow. We may not be able to save our world, retake our culture. And I say to you this morning, I ask you, what if we aren't meant to save our world? What if we're meant to be faithful? To proclaim God's salvation, what if we're meant to wait for His final deliverance to come to us in His time as we remain faithful on earth? You know, most of the apostles died a martyr's death. Was that because they weren't faithful enough? Is that because they didn't do enough? They didn't change things quickly enough? They weren't bold enough, urgent enough with the gospel? Or was it because, as Hebrews 11 says, that they desired a better country, a heavenly one? That verse ends by saying, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. My friends, a change is coming. It's already come for some of us. And oh, what a glorious change it is. We who once were dead are now alive. We who were blind can now see. We can see God's grace That saved us, that changed us. We can taste God's hope both in this life and in the life to come. We know that without Christ our condition was grave and then some. We were dead in our sins. But in Christ we have hope. Our condition is grace. We've been changed. And His grace to me, as Paul says elsewhere, was not in vain, it was not without effect. And because that is true for all of us who've come to Christ, we can rejoice in our common privileges. That leads to our third point, our great privilege in Christ. Our great privilege in Christ, verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Privilege, why I use that word? It's because Matthew Henry used that word. Privilege is a loaded word. In 2023, you might be wondering, do I have any thoughts about so-called white privilege? I do. I shared most of them already during our six-week adult Sunday school class on the gospel, race, and theology. uh, GRT, I called it. I use those letters intentionally because, as I said, the gospel gives us better answers than CRT, than critical race theory. The Bible gives better explanations for the hostility, the word that you see in this passage that we see today. It tells us that sin is ultimately our biggest problem, the world's biggest problem. And the Bible gives us better solutions than the world around us to these things. It says, regardless of whether you've been privileged or not by birth, you have a better privilege in Christ. Isn't that what we see here? Now, we need to acknowledge there's all kinds of Jew, Gentile, racial tension going on here, whether you want to call it racial tension or ethnic, social, cultural, religious tension. I think there's a sense where all those words are appropriate. to Describe it but just briefly with me, skim through verses 11 through 14. See, after talking in those first 10 verses about our our grave condition, the glorious change, those things, Paul transitions a bit from our common background. He transitions and he addresses one particular group, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the uncircumcised. Circumcision, of course, we could say a lot about this. We'll say this much, circumcision was a medical procedure that had spiritual significance, especially for the Jews. It said, only God can cut away our uncleanness. The Gentiles didn't have the sign of circumcision by and large, but they could have the greater reality with or without the sign. But because they didn't have the sign, the Gentiles, it says, they were separated, alienated, strangers to the covenants. In other words, they were not part of the people of God in the Old Testament, not by birth. They grew up without these traditions. Sometimes we despise tradition, but we need to realize that tradition, it's rich in meaning, in history. It tells us about our God and his grace. That's not something to be taken lightly. These Gentiles, they grew up without that, without the privileges that the Jews had, had excuse me, Privileges, or what Paul calls advantages, in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And there he teaches them to appreciate whatever privileges, whatever advantages they might have. All so that he can say, the point is that there are better advantages, better privileges in Christ. Yes, there's also a sense where he is saying that Gentiles and Jews now have the same privileges. That's true. Don't skip that. But what's the reason that we Jews and Gentiles or any diverse group of people can have unity in Christ? It's because of Christ. It's because of the common privilege as God's people who are saved by his grace, isn't it? Isn't that what Paul says in verse 13, he transitions. He starts emphasizing the privileges that the Gentiles now have by faith in Christ. He says, you once were far off, but now you're near. Why are you near? Why are they privileged? Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He's talking about Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's a whole lot going on here. But briefly, this dividing wall is probably talking about the veil in the Old Testament temple the one that separated God's people from his presence, that separated them from the holy of holies, the thing that said not just anybody can walk into the presence of a holy God. Now, what else did it do? It also sort of excluded others. Paul's talking about it in a symbolic way. It separated the people of God who had all these traditions from those who didn't know what was going on. And what else does he say? That wall, that separation, it's been torn down, both literally and figuratively. What happened when Christ was crucified on the cross? Matthew 27, 51 says, the veil that we're talking about, it was torn. And it wasn't torn by any human. Why do we know that? Well, because the veil was 30 feet high and it was torn from top to bottom. Who could have done that but God himself? Only God could open up access into his presence, which is what he did when the Son of God was crucified for our sins. Atonement was made so access was opened up, not just for Jews who had grown up with all these traditions, but also for Gentiles. As he says in verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thus killing the hostility. Why can there be peace between Jews and Gentiles instead of hostility as there was for years and years and years? Why can there be peace between any group of Christians from different backgrounds? Why can there be peace instead of hostility, instead of competitiveness and jealousy and pride and so much more? Why? Because we both have peace with God. Jews and Gentiles, everyone else, through faith in Christ, have peace with God because Christ died for both of them. Christ killed the hostility by nailing both of their sins, all of our sins, through faith in Christ, to the cross. Verse 17, he says, and he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. But despite those differences, all of us have the same problem. Our grave condition without Christ dead in our sins and transgressions. Same background. All of us have the same solution, this grace condition, this glorious change in Christ that only comes by His grace. And therefore, all of us have the same privileges, the same hope, the same future. As verse 19 and beyond goes on to say, it says, if we're in Christ, you're not aliens, you're not strangers. No, no matter where you came from, you're a citizen of heaven. You're a member of the one universal church And you know, if we are members of the universal church, then shouldn't we want to be part of a local outpost, a forward operating station on the front lines of the spiritual mission? In other words, shouldn't we want to be a member of a local church so that we might rest on the foundation that the apostles have laid so that we might truly belong to the household of God, the people of God, growing together, joined together by the spirit of God? It was about 400 years ago that a group of British theologians who were in the middle of a civil war, civil war was raging around them, I'm not saying they were fighting in it, but they came together as this civil war raged and they wrote this, all saints, again all those who are holy in Christ, all saints being united to one another in love have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged. To the performance of such duties, public and private, as conduce to their mutual good. Because we're united together through faith in Christ, we should serve one another in the love of Christ. Because we have the same background, the same problems. We have the same solution, the same privileges. Because of all that, my friends, whether we realize it or not, we're in this together. You may not want to deal with all the problems in your life or in the world but at least you're not alone as you try to and then maybe again maybe that's the problem maybe you would rather be alone maybe you don't want to be in partnership with that guy or that guy that lady but my friend that person whoever they might be they're not so different from you because no matter what surface differences you might have you were both dead in your sins until God made you alive. You were both saved by grace, not by your works. And God has killed the hostility between us. So who are you to resurrect it, to bring it up once again, between you and another citizen of heaven who was saved by God's grace, who was redeemed by his blood. My friends, you once were dead, so was he or she. You're now alive. It's time to celebrate. It's time to grow in grace together in God's house with all of God's people and all God's people said Amen. Let's pray. God, you're good and what you do is good. The same goodness that you've shown to me, you've shown to other brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of whether their sin was supposedly worse than mine or not as bad as mine. Oh, Father, remind us that the Ground is level at the foot of the cross. Help us all cling to the cross. Help us do it together. Help us to encourage one another that we might pursue you, that we might grow up together and become more like Jesus. All this we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.